News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. This morning, we're going to talk about melatonin because it's increasingly popular for people to take kind of like a sleep supplement. Even kids are taking it. And that's what our contributor, Scott Shantz, is tackling this morning. Hi, Scott. Hi, how are you? I am good. Thank you. I'm fascinated by this because I feel like we've been hearing about melatonin for 25 plus years now, and we still don't know enough about it. Yeah, absolutely. It's like out there. And I know a lot of people that take it. And I also know a lot of people that give it to their kids because I'm in that that age group. My kids are two and six and all of my friends have kids around the same age. So this is like an ongoing conversation around kids and getting them to sleep. It's like the most important thing. Parents are giving this supplement because they think this helps their kids sleep? Well, I think, yeah, it does. It's the idea is that melatonin, it's like this hormone from your brain that uh, regulates your serotonin and it does, it like regulates your sleep cycle. And when you're desperate for sleep with new kids, it's like, we'll try anything. And here's this naturally occurring thing. You don't need a prescription for it. You just go to basically anywhere and get it. And I do know parents that are doing it. And I also know parents who are kind of concerned about doing it. There's not really enough research around there. So I thought this is an important thing for me to understand some more about. And uh, I got in touch with professor of pediatrics and clinical pharmacology from Western University, Dr. Michael Reeder. Uh, he's done a lot of research on melatonin. And I asked him, is like, first of all, is, is our sense correct? Does it feel like more and more people are using melatonin? For sure. I mean, we did a study, and this is a few years back, about uh, actually about six years ago. It turned out that one in four, 25% of kids in London were on some kind of sleep aid, most commonly melatonin. And if you look at statistics, um, the use of melatonin has gone up. Uh, the Center for Disease Control in Atlanta, Georgia, tracked it, and their estimate has gone up by 500% in the last 10 years. So it, melatonin is first or second most commonly used herbal medication or natural product medication in children. Wow. Should we be doing this? Is this okay? Are there risks in giving this to our kids? Uh, the answer is it depends. Uh, and I'm going to say that if, if your child has neurodevelopmental problems, say they have autism spectrum disorder or issues like that, there's emerging evidence. There's about three pretty good studies that suggest that, yes, uh, it may be helpful. Now, kids who have those kind of problems often have, very, often have a lot of sleep troubles. And there's emerging evidence that what happens in is, is those kids actually don't make melatonin as much. Because the enzyme that makes it in the brain that turns mel- serotonin to melatonin is, is lacking. It's not as active in those kids. So for those kids, there's pretty good evidence that a bit of, mel- a bit of melatonin, I emphasize the word a bit, we'll come back to that in a minute, is helpful in regulating sleep. So in kids with those problems. Now, what about kids who don't have those problems? There's no evidence that actually is helpful um, because those kids probably make enough melatonin. And there's lots of reasons that kids who, who make a melatonin have trouble sleeping. And the issue with that comes into the issue of dosing. Because mel- in, in most of the world, melatonin is a prescription medicine. Canada and the U.S. are very unique, and it's not. So if you're in Japan, Australia, pretty much all of Europe, the U.K., you have to get a prescription to get melatonin. Canada and the U.S. is sold as a natural product of dietary supplement, which means the doses are as well regulated. So 10 milligrams is a pretty good adult dose. And there's 10 milligram chewable tablets out there. So if you're giving a 10 milligram dose, say to your toddler, your three-year-old, well, that's way more than they, than they need. So melatonin overdose, children sent to poison centers in the U.S. melatonin overdose are very, uh, it's actually much, become much more common. 
and there can be some serious side effects. You actually mentioned something there that I want to just quickly circle back on because, again, it, like I think you're—I didn't realize that it wasn't available or that it's prescription medis- medication or prescription supplement in other parts of the world, and that's really enlightening because I know a lot of people here who th- who sort of regard it as. Oh, it's a herbal thing. I can just get it anywhere type of thing and sort of keep it in the house all the time. And I've heard it said that you actually can't overdose on melatonin and that would be incorrect. It sounds like that that is absolutely incorrect for parents who are struggling so hard with this. What do you have other, other thoughts, other recommendations? Um, if you go to the sleep foundation website, there's various, um, there's various uh, short snippets, YouTube snippets, and, and short uh, bit clips on the web about behavioral strategies you can use. The behavioral strategies work, but they're a lot more effort. Um, and, you know, I recognize in a busy world, if you've got, like, a couple of kids, you know, you're both working, they're hard to do, but they're more likely to be effective. So if you have a neurologically normal child having sleep troubles, the first thing I would do is look at establishing a sleep routine and use some of the resources that the Sleep Foundation or other groups have online uh, to talk about behavioral methods you can use, which are more likely, and they're more likely to be sustained over the long haul. Is there a circumstance where, um, you know, you, you would give it sort of a, hey, you could use it here, like for this long. And I get it's kind of like a case by case basis, but is there a circumstance where you would yeah. say, yeah. It's case by case. I think for adults who have jet lag, it's clearly short if you use it for a week or so after your jet lag, it helps get your rhythm back. For kids with developmental disabilities, I think it's probably okay for chronic use. Um, there's actually, there's a woman in Nelson, BC, was talking to me about how she used it. And she's a smart person, like most women, she's smart. And mm. uh, she used it in small doses and increased it really slowly in consultation with her physician. So that the doses are small <clears throat> and you w- w- watch for effect because she has a, ch- ch- a child who's, who's you know, neurodiverse, who's a bit on the spectrum. Um, but that worked. For kids like that, long-term therapy at low doses is probably safe. For other kids, it's probably not. So I would say, you know, if you're in a situation where you're jet-lagged as an adult or even as a probably adolescent, probably short courses are fine. If you're in a situation where you have a chronic neurologic disorder like autism spectrum disorder or some of those other neurodiverse problems, long-term therapy in consultation with your physician at appropriate doses is probably fine. Beyond that, I think it's, uh, I don't think there's any real evidence saying this should be used. Okay, Scott, that was absolutely fascinating. And what really struck me about what Dr. Michael Reeder was saying there is that the behavioral strategies work, but they are more work. But my feeling on that is using the behavioral strategies, okay, yeah, it's going to cost you more work, but you are setting your child up for a, a lifetime of, of learning and knowing their own behavior, melatonin is just a, it, it ain't an aid and they're not going to learn anything from using it. it. Exactly, exactly that. And this is why my wife and I have been so hesitant to use it, even even for myself, is I don't want to develop some some need that a I can't. A reliance on reliance. the sleep aid, yeah. And he said, these were the two stats in there. It's gone up, use has gone up 500% in the last decade. And everywhere except Canada and the States, you need a prescription to get it. Shouldn't yes. that tell us something? Yes. Crazy. And you know what? 10 years, that coincides with the advent of smartphones yeah. and people not being able to put their phones away. And yeah. so like we can develop sleep habits, but they require some discipline on our part. But instead, people sounds like they would rather take a pill and get some help. Yeah. 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 Scary stuff. Hey. 
Uh, so fascinating. And um, you know what? If you have any emails and questions about that, direct them to Scott. <laughs> <laughs> Scott at CKNW is my email address. That was Dr. Michael Reeder, uh, professor of pediatrics and pharmacology from Western University in Ontario. So interesting. Scott, thank you very much for that. This is Mornings with Simi. Contributor Scott Chance is back with us now because we're going to talk about this NHL decision. It's generating a lot of headlines, a lot of discussion. Good morning, Scott. Good morning. Yesterday, you called me a Pollyanna. Was that yesterday or a couple of days ago? Might have been every day, Scott, because you are. (laughs) And I typically am, but I, I am actually legitimately upset about this. Okay, so this is a good reason for us to talk about it. I think a lot of people are. I'm more cynical than you are. So I look, I thought, you know what, this is so typical of the NHL that they're running and hiding from a what was a challenging situation, almost like momentarily. Yes. So what's happened here, in case you haven't heard, is that the NHL confirmed yesterday that there will be no specialty jerseys worn during warmups from now on. And you think, oh, okay, no big deal. But the thing is, there were great causes. These were these really advanced kind of hockey into being for everyone. Yeah, I mean, like you were saying, it was a, a momentary thing that, that a few people had their feathers ruffled over the Pride Night jerseys. There was maybe 10 players in the entire NHL that didn't want to wear the Pride jersey, and the teams dealt with that in the ways that they dealt with it individually. That's another conversation on how they should be dealt with. But because of that, they've chosen to scrap Pride Night jerseys, Chinese New Year jerseys, Diwali jerseys, Black Lives Matter jerseys, Hockey Fights Cancer jerseys. The list goes on and Armed on. Forces, there was like Military Appreciation Night jerseys. Totally. Like you name it. Whatever the cause was, they're getting rid of all of them. All of it because of like 10 people who got upset and then people were vocal about what they should be doing, what they shouldn't be doing. And instead of, you know, standing up and facing some of these issues and saying, yeah, there is some difficulty here and we do have to figure out how we're going to navigate this with people's individual rights and freedoms and all of that type of stuff. Like that's a conversation that needs to be instead of having that conversation with players and fans and teams and a conversation that we're all having all the time. The NHL has decided to too hard. No, nope, not going to do that's it. That's right. We're gonna. We're just gonna go. We're just gonna go home. We're not going to engage. It, it's just. It's so mad. And then they're also saying, "You guys can do that. We'll sell the jerseys, but we're not going to wear them." I don't understand this because I understand that they had the issue with some players not wanting to wear them for Pride Night. And my feeling on that is fine. Don't wear them. But if, as an organization, you're the boss, this is your team, this is your organization, and you say, this is the tone we're setting, we are welcoming this game for everyone, then that is incumbent upon the player to explain why they don't want to participate in that. You don't, totally want, to, you don't want to salute the military? Explain to people why you don't want to salute the military. You don't want to do hockey fights cancer? Tell us why you don't want to do, don't want to wear the Pride Night jersey? You tell people why you don't want to wear the Pride Night jersey. I think still that the teams had a responsibility to say, no, 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 we as organizations can say we want hockey to be for everybody. And it should be. And like, I think the reason that it upsets me so much is because I love the game and it has this like inherent Canadian-ness to it. And this just feels like like political um, face saving. Uh, we don't want to upset anyone, so we're not really going to take any risks. It just feels like un-Canadian, unsportsmanlike. And unsportsmanlike. It, that's, and everybody uh, always says about hockey, what they love about it is the handshake. Yeah. Right? At the end of a very tough game or a tough series, like really tough series, 
you still line up and you shake hands. That's great. That's a great sentiment. I don't understand why we're not doing that for this. It's a great it's point. It's the same thing. It's a, it's a metaphor, but it's the same thing. Yeah. And I mean, it's just like, it, it's a bigger thing. It feels like almost we're moving backwards. That bothers me. It does. I can see that, Scott, for sure, why people would feel that. I know lots of discussion about this today. Scott, thank you for that. This is Mornings with Simi. You'd be forgiven for thinking the only news this week had to do with the Titan submersible near the wreck of the Titanic, but that is not the case. Certainly in the United States, there's been a lot going on. It's time for our weekly check-in with Reggie Giacchini, our Global News Washington correspondent. Good morning, Reggie. Good morning. Let's start with the Hunter Biden news. Now, it feels like for years his name has been connected to different investigations. So what happened this week? So uh, what we had from uh, Hunter Biden, the president's uh, son, is that he pleaded guilty uh, to two misdemeanors uh, as part of an ongoing investigation uh, into what was perceived to be tax crimes uh, and failure to pay more than a million dollars in federal taxes and paying his taxes late over a number of different years. This was an investigation, uh, realistically, that had been going on for five years. And in this guilty plea, uh, what we saw was that Hunter Biden will avoid a charge that was linked to uh, a firearms charge and that he was in possession of one when he wasn't allowed to be because he was found to be on drugs at the time, and that's simply not allowed under U.S. law here. Uh, But it's facing significant blowback from Republicans uh, arguing, look, you know, there are IRS whistleblowers out here that say that he's been handed some kind of favoritism and that Mm -hmm. he should have been charged uh, with something more significant. Ultimately, though, this case looks to be over, at least with this guilty plea. Okay, but obviously, as you said, there have been ripple effects on this. Uh, Former U.S. President Donald Trump is not happy about this either. Well, no, look, I mean, look, Donald Trump's not happy about it. Republicans aren't happy about it. They say that, you know, this is tax evasion and he should have been treated like any other American would have been. It's worth pointing out that several years ago when Democrats were in charge, they were trying to get the the president of the Times tax records to say that he had been, uh, you know, falsely dealing with his taxes and not paying his fair share. And Republicans stood in the way and said that there are tax privacy laws and that this should not be something that lawmakers are handling. So obviously there is a bit of a double standard here. Uh, But at the end of the day, uh, the the broader call here is if there are going to be investigations into children of presidents who maybe used their name uh, to to do things or potentially didn't pay taxes, then those investigations should include the children of all presidents who may also be in the same boat. Right. And speaking of people who should all be treated the same, let's talk about the case as well with former President Donald Trump. So, look, there's a lot to talk about Uh, with the former president. Number one, he has been all over the place when it comes to social media, pushing back very loudly that this is another witch hunt against him, against him. You know, a sign that we've seen before from the former president when the walls begin to close in on him, he takes to social media, he takes to fundraising to try and get uh, a wall of support behind him. At the same time, we're also hearing that the special counsel this week turned over evidence you know, a sign that he is moving quickly in this uh, that included more plural recordings of the former president uh, having to do with information linked to classified documents. We don't know what those recordings are, but Trump's legal team is now in possession of them. This case starts again, uh, goes to trial in August, could wrap up in a couple of weeks with no delays, which is why we are seeing such a kind of fervent push here from the former president to, to ensure that Republicans, his supporters, the base are lining up behind him. Okay, and speaking of that, uh, when it comes to issues affecting the electorate, let's talk about this one year anniversary of a very significant court decision. 
Yeah, absolutely. Tomorrow uh, marks one year since Roe v. Wade was overturned. You know, we saw the pushback wildly across this country. There is still broad based reporting that suggests more than 60 percent of Americans as a whole uh, are not in favor of these broad restrictions. They would like to see some form of access to abortion. And it is quickly becoming uh, a, a central point again for Democrats heading into 2024 who are working to get legislation passed through uh, to a expand access and b paint Republicans as an extremist group, understanding that the broader public is on their side. Uh, in the years since, though, we've seen fights against, um, you know, p- uh, abortion pills. We've seen uh, battles over contraception, but we have seen wins. We have seen some states find themselves in a position of having um, legislation overturned, opening up access, but still in a far restricted way. There are still 24 states uh, in the U.S. that have either full or partial restrictions in place. Uh, broad marches are expected across across the country tomorrow, including here in D.C., um, but by women, by people who are arguing that the government is doing too much and getting in the way of people making decisions about their own health. Right. And yet, as you point out, it's also still impacting elections, right? I know the Republicans would like people to move on from this, but every time there's a vote, it seems to still come up. Yeah. And look, Democrats are really going to do what they can to drive this to the center. The former, uh, rather, the, the current president, Joe Biden, is expected to make the matter and an issue of abortion um, a key component of his 2024 uh, reelection campaign. Look, it worked in 2022. Democrats lost the House, but they didn't lose it um, by the wide swaths that it was expected to be. And they're hoping that they can kind of um, capitalize on what happened in 2022 and push that through to 2024, especially since there are so many court cases still working the way through that could ultimately have negative income, uh, negative impacts um, on people across this country. So this is going to be a huge moment for Democrats to run for over the next 500 plus days. And let's talk about what happened uh, at the White House this week. There was a state dinner. There was a a state visit, actually, from India's Prime Minister Narendra Modi. And I watched this with fascination because all of a sudden, and there has been a prickly relationship in the past, but all of a sudden, India and the United States seem very buddy-buddy. They do seem very buddy-buddy, and and it's opportunistic here. And it's simply because there is a growing threat uh, that that kind of is threatening regional stability in parts of Asia, and that would be uh, growing aggression by Beijing. And in order to push back on China's influence, the United States and and India are working together uh, to boost trade, to boost potential defense here, even though there is no defense pact between India uh, and the United States, to have agreements signed between the two countries is a historic moment because, again, it's not a security ally of the United States. So to be getting this kind of, you know, help and weaponry and aid, um, it, it shows that there is, you know, an ability here for countries to work together, even if, like, your words there, they have a bit of a prickly relationship, it could signal to China, A, uh, there are alliances here that, you know, may not work in your favor, but B, uh, as we heard from the Indian delegation, that this could be a signal to kind of this, the, the global south, that look, if India can work with the United States, other countries can work with the United States, and this can work to kind of push back on countries like Russia and China who try to align themselves with India because they find it strategically um, you know, easier for them in that region. Yeah, the White House really rolled out the red carpet on this, didn't they? They absolutely did. Look, full state dinner, uh, a full vegetarian state dinner because Narendra Modi is vegetarian uh, himself. Uh, you know, this is what we see at most state dinners. It is a, it is a lavish um, affair. It 
it's usually the last day of the visit. There is, you know, additional work that's that's coming today. Uh, but it's also interesting because Modi himself was barred access to the United States before he was prime minister uh, over allegations linked yeah. to to human rights uh, and and religious um, impacts. And to have him now in the country touring around, not just in D.C. I mean, he met with Elon Musk as well. Uh, this this is a significant moment for India U.S. relations. Fascinating. And very quickly, Reggie, I want to ask you about this crackdown on fentanyl trafficking. I know a lot of people would say, what the heck are we waiting so long for on this? Yeah, look, this is this is an ongoing operation uh, by Department of Homeland Security. Uh, it involves Customs and Border Protection. Uh, I think it's interesting here in that you're seeing the U.S. tout the fact that it's been able to pull in thousands and thousands and thousands of pounds uh, of fentanyl, get it off the streets. There are critics who say, look, that suggests that the problem is far larger if you're able to pull that much in. I think if we broaden this out and look back to what uh, happened with the Secretary of State in China, the U.S. and China say that they will work together to try and curb the flow production uh, of fentanyl in China from getting into the U.S. This is an administration who said it would hold China accountable, and it's trying to do that as it now works to protect people on its own streets. All right. Thank you so much for the update, Reggie. Thank you. Reggie Cicchini, our Washington correspondent for Global News, catching up on uh, news out of the United States this week. The fentanyl stuff, I know it really kind of fell under the radar, I think, because of everything else that happened this week. But it is so interesting. Department of Homeland Security saying they plan to intensify efforts to combat fentanyl trafficking. And I know here in Canada, we would love to hear those words, too, wouldn't we? This is Mornings with Simi. What is a ghost gun? Well, it's a gun that can't be traced. And these days, that often means a 3D printed gun. That sounds terrifying, doesn't it? The idea that someone could just start printing untraceable guns. Well, it is happening out there. And police forces across Canada are reporting an increasing rise in the number of 3D printed guns that they are coming across. Now, Canada recently introduced updated firearms legislation. It's called Bill C-21. But there are concerns that they are not specifically targeting 3D printed guns. Well, Dr. Noah Schwartz is an assistant professor of political science at the University of the Fraser Valley and author of On Target, Gun Culture, Storytelling, and the NRA. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. Thank you so much for having me. How big of a problem are 3D guns, 3D printed guns in Canada, do you think? Well, it's strange because a few years ago, I would have said, uh, you know, the the problem is overstated. It's a lot of hype. Um, But we're seeing more and more, especially just in the last two years, but these firearms are be showing up more and more on crime scenes. Uh, so, for example, uh, in 2020 and 2021, uh, police seized very, very few of these guns. So, for example, Calgary police only seized one 3D printed gun in 2021. And then by 2022, that number was as high as 17. And I expect that in 2023, we're going to see it increase uh, even more. So they're becoming a bigger and bigger part of the, the picture of crime guns in Canada. And so how are we dealing with them? Yeah, so police at the moment, I think, are using um, the the tools that they have at their disposal. Um, Intelligence, for example, this latest raid uh, was the product of some very, very good police work. Uh, They had intelligence that someone was importing uh, certain firearm parts from the United States. Uh, This person wasn't uh, legally able to own a firearm, so they followed up on that, and they were able to kind of trace this fairly large network across Canada, I think eight different provinces, that these firearms uh, were being sent to. Uh, So at the moment, they sort of have to rely on on traditional police work, but it's going to get more and more difficult as 3D printing becomes more accessible uh, and and these files continue to disseminate on the Internet. Okay, and so we're not, even though this alert is out there, it feels like people are warning about it, Dr. Schwartz, but are are governments not acting? How can police even fight back against this? 
it's really, really tricky to regulate um, because a lot of the things that are involved with it are, are legal until the point that you make a gun. So, for example, 3D printing technology, there's a lot of very legitimate uses that someone might have uh, for owning a 3D printer. Um, and, and it's becoming more and more important businesses, for example. A lot of the engineering businesses are using them, folks like that. So it's hard to regulate the machines. And then the files, obviously, once something's out on the Internet, um, it, it's incredibly difficult uh, to sort of rein that information in. Um, it's made even more tricky by the fact that uh, in the United States, where a lot of these the innovation in 3D printed firearms is coming from, um, they have strict uh, constitutional amendments that, that have made it challenging for, for police to crack down on disseminating these files. Uh, for example, there have been First Amendment cases in the courts um, that have said that, you know, you can't shut down the spreading of these files. And then obviously Second Amendment issues as well. Okay, so that makes it sound a little bit kind of hopeless, like there's not a lot that we can do here. It's hard to say. I think uh, a lot of the best minds in Canada are, are, are thinking very hard on this right now. Um, but so far, uh, there, there's been, you know, we're playing a game of cat and mouse uh, with, with, you know, people who are, are producing these firearms. And, and it's inherently difficult because we're, we're always going to be one step behind. And so these are functional? Like how, how fancy does a 3D printer have to be in order to make this happen? Yeah, so usually um, the 3D printer allows you to make many of the firearm parts, um, and then you can combine those with sort of uh, household items, things that can be purchased at the hardware store or, or produced without too, too much effort uh, to be able to make a fully functional firearm. Okay, that's kind of scary that it's that easy for someone to do. And that's what makes it so tricky to regulate, um, is that the technology is becoming better and better as well um, as this sort of game of cat and mouse uh, continues. So I know that people have said to the federal government, you need to do something about this. Do you see anything in Bill C-21 or anything on the agenda that shows that they are taking this seriously? I, I think they are uh, trying to take this seriously. I think, that, I think they're still trying to figure out exactly how we tackle this. Um, unfortunately, with C-21, they've been spending a lot of time and effort um, you know, uh, going after the, the thing which is the least uh, source of crime guns in Canada, uh, which is generally uh, licensed gun owners. We know, uh, obviously, Canada has a big smuggling pro- problem uh, with firearms. And oftentimes when 3D printed firearms are turning up in crime scenes, they're turning up or, or being raided, for example. Uh, they're turning up alongside smuggled guns, alongside smuggled uh, drugs. So we know that organized crime is playing a big part as well in the dissemination of these 3D firearm, printed firearms. Um, but I think it's going to be, it, it poses a challenge to C21 and their efforts to, to control firearms. Right. It just feels like, though, we've got the signs right there in front of us. But once again, Canada might be missing the boat on this. I think that, that we definitely have to spend uh, a lot more time and money thinking this through and, and thinking through how we're going to, to regulate this. All right. Well, thank you so much for your time this morning. Thank you for having me. This is Mornings with Simi. Sometimes there are stories in the news that you think, huh. This sounds like a movie, or this must be made up. People in New Westminster would be forgiven for thinking that this week with this unbelievable story of the New West School Board and one particular trustee whose extracurricular activities are coming under scrutiny for some very good reasons. Also, if you have ever wondered who's behind the keyboard when it comes to online trolls, Oh boy, is this story for you too. So we're going to let Rhea Renouf explain all of this to us. Rhea is the managing editor of the New West Anchor and joins us now. Hi, Rhea. Hi, Simi. Good morning. Good morning and nice to talk to you again. Um, Likewise. Right. Tell me about this story. How did this get started? 
Oh, I know we only have about seven minutes, but let me try and do my best to sum this up. So I got I, I got tagged late. I believe it was last Wednesday night, and it was by this woman named who went by the name Sarah Siegel online. Her name is Sarah Arboleda, and the the opening tweet alone, I I was like, okay, this is going to be something. And so she said, for the past few months, my husband and I, her husband's name is James Plett, he's also active on Twitter, began receiving odd comments from quote-unquote Alan anytime we were critical of the school board. So as I'm scrolling through this, I'm seeing stuff like comparing their daycare plight. So, so James and Sarah have a child in the daycare system. That particular daycare um, is run by, is in a building that belongs to the new Westminster school system. And so their daycare is going to be moved elsewhere outside of the downtown core, which has meant some really problematic issues for, for Sarah and James, who will now have to look at quadrupling their, their commute. So you're seeing these, these ridiculous tweets that are, that are basically making fun of them, that are, are talking about how Sarah's issue is, quote, not as bad, or uh, to paraphrase, not as bad as, like, the issues in Syria. Um, there were some tweets that sort of ended with this flippant phrase, which, which would be, like, whoop-dee-ding-dong. Um, and at one point, there was even a, a posting of a, a child uh, of their their location not sarah and james's child but but a child of another person in the district essentially you could argue being doxxed because their their location was shared so just this is an account that that went after you know former bctf president terry mooring uh it went after other media in this city there's only there are only two publications in the city but it would it would tag other media it was, so it was just it was a troll so it was like a, it was a oh. real troll going after anybody who criticized things that the school board did Correct. That's right. Or just generally, I mean, there were some tweets that that said that tweeted at Melania Trump and Meghan McCain. So this was sort of a hmm. whatever they felt like kind of thing. It was okay. just, just yeah, it was bizarre. OK. And so then where it got even more bizarre is when we found out who this who's actually behind this trolling account. Yes. So, so the smoking gun in this very comprehensive thread that Sarah put together was it was actually, I believe, in the second tweet that Sarah had. And what happened was the, the troll had a screenshot that included location data. So it, it had the start point was from the current daycares to the, the new daycare where all these spaces, well, some of these spaces are going to be moved to. Now, for those who haven't seen this picture, there's a third point on the map, and it's a nice little blue dot over the neighborhood, Sapperton. And Sarah, she didn't notice it right away, but she told me that, you know, as she was sort of digging here and there, every time Alan tweeted at her, she would go and dig. And, and so one night she was sitting around and she goes, hang on, there was a third point on, on this map. And she goes, well, all of these trustees have paperwork that is publicly available. Every municipality can go look up the address um, of a trustee. And uh, unfortunately, it, it pretty much gave, well, not unfortunately, but it did pretty much give Sarah some pretty damning evidence at the time was circumstantial, but it gave her enough evidence to say this could potentially be DBD. And so DBD is a school trustee who then eventually admitted to being this online troll, which is shocking, Rhea, that an elected official yeah. would say, oh, yeah, that was me using another account trolling people. 
Of course. So I so when I saw this late late Wednesday last Wednesday night, obviously I did my due diligence. I'm going. This is this is a wild. Yeah. So I did my due diligence. I reached out to the New West Dis- uh, District Labor Council who endorsed Ms. Beatty. I reached out to the school board. Have you seen this? I reached out to uh, Dee's party uh, community first, and you know uh, the school board said they were looking into it. I didn't hear back from the New West District Labor Council, but what I did get from Community First, which was Ms. Beatty's slate, was that. Basically, through her party, D vehemently denied doing this. She was like, it wasn't me. And and furthermore, in the community first statement, they said, we want Alan to come forward. Like, we're working to see who this is. About 24 hours later, I was off, but um, I got an email from D, uh, and it was sent to myself and to uh, the other publication in the city, the New West Record. And, you know, I saw the there was a uh, statement, this uh, attachment in the, in the email, and I go, uh-oh, I'm going to open this. I was a little bit nervous, and um, I opened the email and the attachment, and it, in the first line, she admitted to being Alan. So it was a, a bit of a turnaround. So we'd done a 360 from 24 hours uh, after what I'd been told by the party. I can't, I still can't even believe that, right? Like, it's, it's bad enough already on social media, but to think that that's what people, like people that you know that are out in the public are actually doing this and being trolls. So has she said anything since then? I know there's been a lot of calls for her resignation. What has been the reaction, the consequences of this? Um, I actually did. So there was a school board meeting on Tuesday night. Now, I did reach out to Ms. Beatty to say uh, to ask her a couple of questions. Number one, have you extended any personal apologies to the people who were affected by this? I, I talked to uh, there were two other city councillors were also tweeted at. Uh, and, and of course, Sarah and James. But, but for me, the big question was, Sarah, James, was there any kind of personal apology after the statement came out? And uh, Sarah has told me. She, neither she nor her partner have received any kind of personal apology. Uh, one of the other counselors mentioned that the two of them have not received a personal apology. Uh, so I haven't, I personally have not heard anything from Ms. Beatty, um, but I, I am going to obviously keep on top of it. Now, there is that call for her resignation. And, you know, I, I had a lot of emails and tweets coming at me saying, well, she should be fired. But as you and I know uh, from, you know, what yeah. was it, 2016, it's not, you can't just fire a school board trustee. In fact, I would argue it's much easier to fire an entire school board, as we saw in in the shoe swap, and as we saw, of course, with the VSD, with the Vancouver School Board, you can wipe out an entire board if they fail to meet certain um, conditions. And in this case, there were very extremely limited conditions that would allow you to fire a school trustee. And that is why she has to give, she has to officially tender her resignation. But there's so, no, yes, there's no sign, called for. right? There's no sign that that's actually going to happen. Well, that's the thing. We're kind of in limbo right now. And I will note, if I'm not mistaken, I believe Ms. Beatty was the vice chair. So she makes a tiny little bit more relative to some of the other councillors. Now, our councillors, pardon me, board members. Now, now I will also say that uh, the, the meeting on Tuesday was the final meeting of the, the school year. So they're not back in session until September. Uh, that being said, you know, there have been these calls through this third party investigation. But um, the school board believes very much so that it has taken the strongest action in calling for her resignation and Community First, uh, which did apparently have its AGM last night, Community First is is pretty much in agreement that with the school, like this is the strongest action that they say they can take at this time based on what is outlined in the School Act. So that's where we're at right now. Oh boy. Okay. So if there's any updates, we're going to have to bring you back on. But Rhea, thank you so much for letting us know about that. 
My pleasure. Thanks for having me. That is Ria Renouf, managing editor of the New West Anchor. You can check that publication out. They have been doing extensive coverage of this issue, but it's so frustrating to think that you've got somebody who was in charge of helping to make decisions for kids. We like to teach kids about, you know, behaving well and all those things, but somebody who was, admit by their own admittance, was trolling other people online in quite nasty fashions under an assumed name. This was an elected school trustee, and there's lots of calls for their resignation now, but they can't be forced, and no word on whether they will actually consider stepping down of their own volition. It must be so incredibly frustrating uh, for the community out there. If you want to weigh in, simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. All right, time for us to check in with our Vancouver Whitecaps this morning. Coach Vanny Sartini joined us. Now, Coach, one goal is good, but we need to start seeing some more, don't we? Yeah, of course. We, uh, uh, we, we, we need goals. We need, we need mostly to play. Wednesday we were there waiting to play and play and play, and then we didn't play because of the weather. So if we don't play, we can't score. <laughs> that is so true. But just taking a look at the standings there too, like because we're right on the bubble, right? We're in ninth there, and we need to we need to get that goal differential kind of up there. Yeah, you know, it's uh, we need we need wins for sure. We had a lot of uh, very good performance this season, and a lot of games where we probably we deserve to win the game and we tie. So we need to become a little bit more. I would say cynical sometimes a little have a little bit more of uh, I would say hunger for the win and uh, and uh, try to make this game that are like 51 49 55% more on on our uh, on our favor a three points game instead of one point game so goals will will help for sure Right. How weird was that, though, with that last game, just sitting there kind of, are we playing? Are we not playing? Are we playing? Are we not playing? <laughs> yeah, it was, it was, I would say, more tiring than a normal game, probably, because, uh, you know, we went out, uh, there was national anthem and everything, and then, of course, there was this uh, uh, storm approaching, so, okay, you guys go out, and, uh, yeah, and we were just waiting, 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 because, of course, the league wanted the game to go, and uh, we didn't know uh, if we were going or not. So uh, it was like, uh, you know, watching those apps where you can see all the, all the weather patterns that are coming. Right. Or not. And, uh, and on the other way around, it's, uh, it was okay, 7.30, 8.30, 9.30. So um, I, had to, I had to drink a lot of espresso because if not, I would have fallen asleep. <laughs> <laughs> I could see why. Okay, so that got postponed, but tomorrow you've got a game coming up. Yes, tomorrow we are actually already here in in Los Angeles, and tomorrow we play here against the LAFC that are the top of our division. So it's going to be a difficult game, but also an exciting game. So we 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 come here uh, like the fact that we didn't play on Wednesday. It can be maybe at the end a little advantage because they played, so uh, we're not tired and they maybe maybe we have fresher legs than them, so we'll see. Okay, fingers crossed on that one, Coach. Thanks. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you so much. Good luck bye, with the team. game. Bye. That's Vanny Sartini, coach of the Vancouver Whitecaps. All right, still ahead for us. Don't forget, by the way, you can listen to all the games on AM 730. They got a big one tomorrow against LAFC. This is Mornings with Simi. I feel like this nest topic is one that really gets some parents, including me, really worked up because my kids were of that age and that generation when they stopped teaching cursive in schools. And 
it really bothered me because I know that when it came to fine motor skills, I had one child in particular who kind of struggled with those fine motor skills. And I always thought that learning cursive was something that would have helped. But you know what? Didn't happen at school. That was of the era that, no, we don't need to teach cursive. Kids don't learn that. Well, now I hear that it's coming back, actually. Teaching cursive is becoming something that um, some school districts are saying, no, no, we want to do this. In fact, in Ontario, they are talking about bringing this back as mandatory, teaching cursive. And the Ontario Education Ministry is discussing making that happen. They were doing that this week. And I thought, well, this is a great topic because how important is it for your child to learn handwriting. Joining us now is Dr. Hetty Rosing, who's a professor emerita at the University of Calgary's Workland School of Education, Specialization, Language and Literacy. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Good morning from Calgary. Well, good morning to Calgary. So tell us, how important is it for kids to learn cursive? I think it's really, really important. I think your handwriting conveys so much about your identity, who you are, uh, the signature on the page, or many other reasons why, if you're taking notes or writing a Valentine's Day card, cursive handwriting really makes a difference uh, to the speed or fluency with which you can put that stuff on the page or the card. Okay, then how did we move away from teaching it? I think a couple of things. I think cursive, many people misunderstand what we mean by cursive. I think a lot of people think up the old Spencer or the Danelian or the, the handwriting that was taught maybe 30, 40 years ago. Zainer Blosser, another one, can, you know, that tends to be loopy, uh, very hard on little hands. You need 300 little muscles that understand what it needs to do to learn to print. So, I think the controversy had a lot to do with the difficulty, the the fine motor control, the visual to motor memory, very hard on little hands if if the script style is too difficult. And then secondly, I would say there was a major shift toward digital literacy and no question, children need to have that under control as well. We live in a digital world, but there has to be room for both. Okay, do you think the pendulum is kind of swinging back now? Perhaps we realize that we've lost some valuable skill in not teaching handwriting skills to kids. I do. Um, So cursive is back on the curriculum, both in Ontario and the newly released Alberta curriculum, both in grade three. Uh, So I think there is a recognition. I don't know how that came about, but I'm thrilled, as you can imagine. I think it's so important to have this. More than just being on the curriculum, though, it, it does need to be taught, and I think that's the next step where we drop the ball. I think that a lot of uh, elementary practitioners don't know how or may not understand how important it is, and it, it tends to be marginalized still on the curriculum. We'll see what happens. Okay, so that's a, an important point, then. You can put it on there, but is it? it's almost like, Dr. Rosing, the, the school of thought has to come back to it, right? And it has to pick up a little bit more momentum. Yeah, you have to convince all those K-3 teachers that this matters. I think you have to support them really well with good learning resources. And in Alberta, we don't have any. Uh, how would you teach cursive handwriting? You want me to teach italic script? Lovely, but show me, support me, make it easy. Okay, and so I, I, is every province thinking about this, do you think, or should they? Oh, I think many are. Uh, some provinces never dropped it, although in looking across Canada, the uh, handwriting in Prince Edward Island, it's, again, too loopy, too difficult. 
it's very hard again on the musculature, the um, yeah, visual to motor memory, all of those things. It makes it a grind, and I can I can see that that's just too much for a six seven year old. Is it a matter of choosing a different style than perhaps to teach? Yeah, you're right on the money on that one. I would advocate for. What Stephen Graham, would, and he's a, a big handwriting uh, specialist, uh, you can Google his name, lots and lots and lots of uh, his career has been allocated to this. He would call mixed, mostly manuscript. I would call it italic. I think italic hand serves the purpose so well. It is an economy of effort, an economy of execution, because think of an A, it's a single-stroke letter in italic in other big ball and stick type methods you lift and every lift is is costly of uh, working memory time so the other thing about italic is the ease with which children can make the connectors beginning in grade two and this is exactly what they do in germany they do this in finland they do this in australia and kids learn a nice uncluttered italic hand the other advantage is is that between lowercase and uppercase and manuscript and cursive the shift is small so you really only have one script to learn whereas if you are in some of these other scripts now when you shift from the manuscript to the cursive it looks completely different and little kids now have to start learning all over again what the new script looks like in cursive hand. Right. Is it, are there ways that parents can support this at home, Dr. Rosing, and say, okay, I, even if it's not emphasized in the classroom, I would like to have my child learn this skill? Yeah. So I think already beginning in, in the early years, in kindergarten or even earlier, I think children need a lot of hands-on involvement with shape recognition and games, block play, very important, um, strengthening the fine motor control. I see that in all these samples, thousands of them that I look at, that the pincer grip is not in place. Uh, the internalized understanding of shape, so draw me an O, draw me a square, draw me a cross, draw me an X. Those are not in place at the age of five. So those are basic underlying um, shape recognition and, and fine motor manipulative and fine motor uh, literacy skills that need to be in place. There are some free online um, resources I, uh, that I find quite good. The ones from Australia are freely available. I like the scope and sequence. I, um, yeah, and maybe if you know what you're looking for, you might even find uh, at the dollar store or something like that a, a printing practice workbook. Um, I'm working on making a resource right now. I'm partnering with some calligraphers who are very keen on this, and we want to make something uh, that will be supportive and free. Oh, I love easy, calligraphy. Easy to put yeah. out there. I yeah. love watching that. Okay, so um, what does it do for the brain? If you can give a message then to people out there, like the importance of doing this, what does it do for us in our brains to be able to do that kind of handwriting, that kind of skill? When you engage the hand-brain complex, you start to lay down the neural circuitry for making meaning in the brain. So if you write, I love you, or you, uh, you release a lot of happy, happy endorphins. If you type, I love you, does none of that. All your brain knows is that you hit four strokes on the keyboard, 
and you could have typed love or hate, your brain doesn't know the difference. So you're making meaning, but you're also encrypting um, understanding in the brain, so embodied cognition, those who can handwrite good notes do better on exams than those who type their notes. So think twice about turning on your computer if you're sitting in a class and trying to um, understand and take notes. If you're, but your handwriting has to be fluent and automatized. It has to be under such good control that you have lots and lots and lots of working memory available to take the notes, to, to, under, to make meaning. So it, it isn't just note-taking, it's note-making. It's generative, you're summarizing, you're making sense, you remember a word, you might underline a word, you're, you're doing all of that good learning. Whereas if you're typing, you're doing none of that at all. You, know what? you have sold me completely on this. Uh, thank you so much for talking to us this morning. Oh, I'm thrilled to be on. Thank you for inviting me. That's Dr. Hetty Rosing, who's a professor emerita of the University of Calgary's Workland School of Education, Specialization, Language and Literacy, talking about the potential return here of bringing cursive back to schools. So the Ontario Ministry of Education is putting this back in the curriculum. Alberta has done this. Would BC be next? Would you want to see that? Let me know. Simi at cknw.com.